welcome to hey great shot this is the great shot podcast brought to you by cracked rackets my name's alex gruskin we have seen so much tennis over the past three months, starting, you could date back, you know, Sydney, Brisbane, Australian Open, Hopman Cup, and then in February, you have so many tournaments from South America Swing, North America, uh, and then obviously the Sunshine Duo in Miami, Indian Wells, Challengers throughout all of that. So we have finally seen enough tennis to the point where we think we can start to make some assumptions about the year, you know, talk about what we've seen, who's progressed, who's regressed, uh, what we expect to see moving forward. Joining me today to help me talk through all of that conversation, he is a freelance writer for the New York Times, co-host of the No Challenges, no Challenges Remaining podcast, and I would say a tennis Twitter provocateur, Ben Rothenberg. <laughs> Welcome back to the Great Shot Podcast. Hey, great shot, Alex. Thank you for having me. <laughs> of course. Well, you know, I obviously want to talk tennis with you today, and in particular, we're going to be doing a continuation from our last conversation where we talked about the next-gen uh, ATP players, but I do want to ask you, you had the experience, uh, you know, you got to travel a little bit during the beginning of the year. I believe you were down in Miami and got to see the new stadium. Uh, what yeah. was the, What were the new grounds like? What was your opinion? So I thought the outer part of it was great. Like the grounds and the outer courts in Key Biscayne always felt kind of crowded and really weirdly poorly designed. Like a lot of the outer courts would only have stands on like one side of the court and they managed to have really bad sight lines and just things about them were off. And they were weirdly spaced out and the grandstand, which was the next biggest court, was way, way far from anything else. And so, and the just general vibe of the outer courts was not all that great. So this time, the outer courts were pretty awesome, I thought. Everything was pretty laid out. They could have been a lot bigger, which I think is an interesting testament to how deep the game is right now in both the men's and women's sides. These, what would be normally nondescript, irrelevant matches were filling up pretty quickly with fans. And so I think they could definitely do well to make a lot of the smallest courts at least twice as big for next year. Um, but out, out, outer court-wise, it was fine. Um, and outer court was great, actually. And the weather was pretty good the whole week, and people in Miami like being outside. I think all that led to people picking the outer courts more and more over the stadium, which was not as resounding of a success, I think. I think that from three sides of the stands, the part that were temporarily built up on top of the football field part of the stadium, the views were really good. I mean, everything was it was like a normal sort of temporary stadium that you get somewhere, and the sight lines were all good, the angles were all good, close to the court, whatever. But the part that the parts that were in the permanent seating of the dolphin stadium just did not really feel good for tennis when you were there that's where the media seats were and they just were at the seats were at far too shallow a gradient to really get good which i never thought about before in viewing a tennis match until it became a problem here but <laughs> no just it's like, a thing yeah no it, you were way too far away from the court for how relatively low down you were um you just couldn't see the ball that well you felt like you were just detached from the action and so I almost was wishing they just built an entirely new, all four sides built up court instead. It would have been better. But they obviously wanted to use a lot of the existing infrastructure of suites and luxury boxes and some of the fancier sort of I don't know, box seats, I guess you call them, that have television screens built into them and other stuff like that in the stadium. Um, so I think that was part of why a lot of times on TV, it was rel especially on TV, it looked worse than it did in person in terms of the main stadium being empty. Um because people, whenever possible, were opting for the outer courts over being inside, which also has a roof overhang over a big part of that 
permanent seating part, which led to it sort of feeling vaguely indoors a lot of the day, um, which is not what people in Miami in sort of the beginning of spring, to the extent they have seasons down there, um, <laughs> what, what that what people wanted. People wanted to be outside and getting sun and enjoying night, the nice weather, and that stadium didn't totally allow for it. So that was not, and that's tough to fix for next year's too. You can't increase the pitch of the you know cement you know permanent <laughs> seats so that part i don't know how they how they're going to fix but i think that's something to keep in mind if you're if anyone here is ever buying tickets for miami in the main stadium um a just consider getting a grounds pass for the first you know and as long as, long as there are singles matches out there i think it's a better value for sure and then b if you do go into the stadium buy the seats that are not part of the original stadium and go make the trick trek out to the temporary scaffolding metal stands because those are those are much better well as much as i'm sure our fans love stadium talk uh i i do uh want just a couple quick follow-ups and then i swear we'll sure. get to the real tennis food wise what are we looking at what's the spread uh pretty standard sort of stadium fair i think i'm not i didn't get the, a ton of the food around the grounds but it seemed to be um, there are a few, like, if you're, like, on the high luxury end of things, there were, like, a couple trendy Miami restaurants that had pop-up <laughs> restaurants there, which I was far too poor to partake in any of that. Um, and then there's, like, the normal, a lot of the normal stadium food for the Dolphins games is there, so various burgers and hot dogs and ice cream and stuff like that they have going on. Um, I think there's a couple other pop-up places that had sort of taco-type things, Um so I don't know. I mean, I, I basically don't have too much time to eat during the day when I'm working there. So I would sort of beeline for the nearest like Wendy's drive-through that was open after <laughs> play ended. That was usually the only thing reliably open that after play stopped. For me, I would when I was in Cincinnati and I got to go to that event. I would always try and race out and make it to a Chick Fil A because we don't have that here in Michigan, and it's always mm. a privilege for me. So yeah, that that fast food run is real. It, that question also allowed me. Uh, buy some time, look up these stats from at Michael Samolsky. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. He talked about some of the attendance records set in Miami uh, in terms of overall attendance at the tournament. They broke the record set in 2012. They had 388,734 people. Uh, They broke the single session record. All of these things uh, looking so good. And I'm just curious from your perspective, do you think that's, you know, a combo of, well, you had Federer in the final. You also had young players breaking through on the men's side and the women's side. Pliskova, Halep, both high seeds uh, making deep runs while Ashley Barty, a young Australian player, ends up winning the title. Do you think it was kind of an individual circumstance, or do you think this, along with the jump in tennis channel ratings, is part of a growing trend? I think the main factor for the the tennis records being really smashed for Miami Open history is just a testament to this new venue and the new location. It's in a much more centrally located part of the Miami metropolitan area, sort of, in that sort of southeast Florida population center. It's closer to Fort Lauderdale, which is another big city. And Key Biscayne was sort of at one far corner of downtown Miami and then down a long two-lane bridge to a peninsula. So it was pretty hard to get to if you didn't live in very downtown or very sort of southeast Miami. It was a pretty long trek. This one is right on I-95 and much easier commute for people to get to. And they also sold grounds passes more openly, which I hadn't realized they didn't do before the Miami Open. Apparently, in past years, Miami Open, they would only sell grounds passes after the stadium had already sold out, which is a weird thing that I don't totally understand the point of. Um, but that that's, that changed their records. And they, were break, they broke the all-time session attendance record um, 
beating all past Miami Open sessions on the first Thursday of this year's tournament. And so that immediately told me that something very different number-wise was going to happen here because you don't break all-time tennis records on a Thursday. You know, <laughs> a lot of top players and a lot of players still have buys and aren't even playing. So it was a whole different scale of attendance here that will hopefully keep being scaled up. And they just need to adjust for next year for making bigger capacities for those sort of small to medium-sized courts. Yeah, I, Stadium I, court is enough. Grandstand is enough. But those sort of court one usually had enough. But like beyond that, there were long, long lines. And there's so many good guys coming up, people that we'll talk about later, like Felix, who were you know on court eight or something and would have 100-person deep lines at every entrance to get to see him because fans know that the sort of rankings don't always correlate with who they're most interested in, fans mm-hmm. who know. We talked about those attendance ranking on our newest podcast, the Mini Break Podcast, which, sorry, Ben, I had to get in a little plug there. And so I just wanted uh, – I thought you'd help provide uh, better context for that stat, so I appreciate you going through that. But enough chat about Miami. I want to talk tennis with you. There's been so much to break down. Uh, what Ben and I are going to be talking about in particular today – uh, continuation of our last podcast, we'll be talking about the next-gen ATP players so far through the ATP season. You think about the results they've had, starting with Tsitsipas in the semifinals of the Australian Open, obviously FAA Shapovalov semifinalists in Miami, uh, Kasmenovic made a run to the quarterfinals. We've seen just so many results from this incredibly talented group of players. I mean, Ben, you made a comment on Twitter, and I know you've written about talking about how uh, is this a period of transition? And I'm just curious, you know, at this point, starting the clay season, do you think the ATP is in a mood of transition? I think the ATP, from a corporate point of view, definitely wants to be and is hoping it is. And I think there was some evidence, like you mentioned, all those things this fall that possibly shows some sort of transition happening. I mean, there was in Miami, most clearly with both Shapovalov and Felix making it to the semifinals, that was a big breakthrough for two young guys in a way there haven't been that many breakthroughs for players in their teens very often at this level. And pretty much everybody else who's gone on, who's, who's made a run at that tournament as a teenager has gone on to a pretty great career. If you look at the list, it's, you know, Murray, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, all sorts of really top, top players, Hewitt, Roddick, even going back before that, those all are good things and people are justifiably excited um, that said, you know, that tournament did end with the oldest final in Miami Open history between <laughs> John Isner and Roger Federer, you know, with combined age somewhere north of 70, I think, probably, or close to 70. <laughs> and so, you know, it's interesting to, to step back and think about how much is this excitement for the next gen and how much of us celebrating their breakthroughs is grading on something of a curve, you know, especially when you compare it to the women's side where, there are players who are in this sort of next-gen age bracket who are doing much bigger things than the next-geners on the ATP side really are. When you think about Bianca Andreescu winning uh, Indian Wells at 18, when Naomi Osaka at 21 is ranked number one and has won the last two Grand Slams. I mean, compared to that, the men's breakthroughs are relatively much smaller. But compared to what it's been like for the last you know 10-odd years in men's tennis with the same guys, holding very strong at the top and almost no breakthrough first time winners at grand slams or masters events even then it's a then it's a big deal on the men's side 
Do you consider Dominic Team part of the next gen crew? I'm just before I get into this list because his yeah. win in Indian Wells is kind of it, you know as much as we've seen Federer was the first guy who won two titles during this ATP season. Other than that, there was a different winner every week. You know, Laszlo Jiras, a 23 year old, he won a title. Uh, obviously, Team Indian Wells. It, it really though, I I just feel like you can make a compelling case that you know finally maybe it's because they're not playing as much week in week out now. A lot of these guys, Chilich, Del Potro, dealing with. With injuries, uh, but just it, it feels like we're seeing new young players winning uh, throughout all of these weeks on tour. Yeah, I to your first question, no, I don't think team fits in next gen by any you know definition or parameter of next gen that has been used. I mean, he was not <laughs> eligible for the first one in Milan when it was coming around as, an, as a concept, first officially put into ATP paperwork. Uh, he was older <laughs> than that, and he won his first Masters event. Now he's what 25, 26 years old. I mean that's yeah. that's in old school tennis that's middle aged. I mean honestly, like that's <laughs> not that's not especially young to making a breakthrough, and he made his first Grand Slam semifinal like three years ago. So no, I, I don't <laughs> think that he's next gen per se. I mean he's it's possible to group him in age wise and definitely achievement wise with Zverev, who's a few years younger than him, um, and think of them in the same sort of category, but. No, I think I think team is sort of a little bit is somewhere in between the Zverev cohort and like the Dimitrov Nishikori okay. group in terms of when he showed up on tour. He's been around a while. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I, I'm not going to argue there. But to the second point, this idea that we're seeing so many young guys breaking through week in, week out, even if it's not always a title, but we'll go through this list later. So many of these guys have made finals, semifinals. You know, some have broken through. I feel like we're starting to see that more and more. Yeah, no, it, it's true. I mean, there is a younger guys coming up. And like you mentioned with Del Potro and Chilich being out, there's more spaces for them. And that's that's a, been a big, big part of it. I mean... Nadal is playing a very sort of scant schedule these days, or very unpredictable schedule, or pulling out of a lot of stuff or wherever. Uh, Djokovic had a rough stretch since the Australian Open. I guess he only played in Indian Wells and Miami and did poorly at both. Um, so that opened up a lot of space for guys to make some runs. And, you know, a few other things have broken their way. So it's they're taking advantage of good opportunities. And eventually, you know, people are just going to have to keep making deep runs in these tournaments. And if the guys who are older than them aren't, shaping up it's going to leave the road open for these younger guys well everyone focuses on the grand slams and we will talk about that uh throughout our conversation but in terms of the parameters just a reminder for the listener uh last time we talked we used the tier system a bit arbitrary but i broke these players down into about four tiers you know tier one being the guys i think could win multiple grand slams in the future sustain that world number one ranking for a while uh tier two being guys top five top ten potential could win a miscellaneous grand slam here or there uh, guys you'll certainly hear from for the next five to ten years tier three you know top 20 player they'll make their second week of the grand slam win 500 events maybe a couple Couple masters, uh, 250 events, just be in that level, and then top uh, tier four. I had as top 50, and going into this season. I only had one tier one player. That was Alex Zverev. Now, that is no longer the case for me. The guys who I think have made the most uh, definitive jumps so far through the beginning of 2019, you know, I think Felix Ogier Alassim and Stefano Tsitsipas now have to be considered tier one players. That's fair. I, I think both of those are, are pretty reasonable picks and would probably be on my list too. I think I remember 
as when we did this, I had a lot more tier. I don't remember my exact list, and, and maybe Eagle Eye <laughs> listeners will remember my or you know made spreadsheets out of my picks or something. But my um, I know that I have had more in there than you did, and I had Zverev. I probably had Tsitsipas. I feel like I hadn't I had not seen a lot of as of last year. I mean, and now I feel like I've seen more of him on these bigger stages and can get a better grip of him too. So would be more ready to put him in one of those top tiers of yours. And I know the one I had in, in tier one last time was which is sort of out, out of left field and far straying from where you had him in your original sort of lineup for us was Opelka, who I was super high on then and now. And this, I think has really has justifiably risen. His, his stock has risen over uh, this first quarter of 2019. If I remember correctly, I think we agreed on Opelka. I had him in there because he was injured. He had mono during the hard court season, but he had ended the year so well with those back-to-back challengers. I, I just kind of wanted to wait and see. I agree with you, but I, I promise we will get to Opelka. Uh, the guy I want to start with, the guy I think we have to start with if we're talking about the next-gen players, is Felix ogier Alassim. You look at his year thus far in 2019, started the year ranked 109, has jumped all the way to number 33. He's 14-7, and made that Miami Masters semifinal from qualifying even more impressive made a final on clay at the Rio Open followed that up I think with a quarterfinal in both cases lost to Laszlo Jir you know Indian Wells round of 32 guys he's beaten Fognini uh Garin uh Cam Nori Tsitsipas uh Hercatch who's been great Basilashvili Chorich I mean it if you follow tennis, you know this is a highly acclaimed guy. He was always the talented uh, player to watch, but it's just striking to me how ATP ready his game is for an eighteen-year-old. No, I mean he's when you watch him, and I watched him um, a couple. I mean, I actually wound up watching a lot more tennis on the outer courts than I usually do it in tournaments at Miami, just because I didn't have deadlines every day because of March Madness taking up so much space in the paper, and also because <laughs> of. They're not being monitors uh, in the press room. Uh, and so I was out roaming the grounds more than I usually would. And I saw a couple of Felix's matches up close. And just, yeah, he's so, so steady and so mature as a player and makes so many smart decisions. And his tennis IQ is super high. Um, and those are all things and sort of his composure and his maturity. I think you get a better sense of in person than on TV sometimes when they keep zooming in on his super young face. But in... Uh, <laughs> In person, he just looks like a really established, really solid player. Um, and that did change, I guess, a little bit once he got to the semifinal and had some really shaky second serves that were his undoing against Isner. But otherwise, I mean, his results look really good to go. And, and he's very, very good on clay, which I think is another thing that speaks well of a young player. And certainly Nadal, we mentioned before, as a uh, breakout 18-year-old. He's someone else who had that, and I feel like when you're good on clay really young, it feels less fluky somehow because you have to really work for those points, and you, your 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 solidness and your consistency and your attention span will all be tested in a far different way than you know making a run on a grass course or something like that, So um, where you can just kind of get by with a more raw power or sort of more tricky kind of novelty game. Um, but I think Clay is a is a good test, and, and Felix has played a ton of Clay in his young career, and so I, I'm really excited to see what he can do on this upcoming swing on it. In terms of maturity, you look at his run in Miami. First of all, his first two uh, main draw matches, three sets over Rudd, three sets over number 29 seed Martin Fuksovics. Then even more impressively, wins three first set tiebreaks in the next three rounds. 
beats her catch, Bashless Vili Chorich. I mean, you just don't see 18-year-olds doing that. Now, of course, he loses two tiebreaker sets to Isner, and, you know, the last guy you want to play a tiebreaker against is John Isner, but that he got to that point is a testament to, you know, the first serve already being a weapon. His serve plus one, he's so great at changing direction with the forehand. As you mentioned, that's a skill that translates so well to clay because of just how compact his ground strokes seem. He's also a guy not afraid to pull the trigger. I mean, he will go big down the line uh, with the forehand, with the backhand, with no hesitation. I just think if we're separating these into tiers, how can you not like those characteristics from him? Right, and just all those things in terms of his completeness and in terms of being high scores in every category across the board. Again, that second serve was pretty dodgy in some key moments against Isner, and he was, as much as it is respectable to get to tie breaks against Isner, he was in those tie breaks because he was up a break late in both sets and you know gave away those leads. Um, but everything else, he, he scores more consistently high across the board than almost anybody else in this sort of next-gen conversation we're having. Certainly, I think he has a more he seems physically more solid or just more balanced and, and more, uh, not even physical, just maybe mentally that the decision-making seems more sound than, uh, let's say, Shapovalov. He seems uh, mm-hmm. he seems to have much sounder technique and much more consistency than uh, Tiafo in this group. Uh, he's a much more complete game than someone like an Opelka. So, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of a lot of things that he scores really well on, and he's a, definitely a generational talent, and it's almost, it feels unfair to be lumping in other guys against him because I think he's just he's just special well you talk about his second serve being an issue you look at some of his losses in this year lost in Pune uh first round to Karlovich lost second round qualifying to Eubanks at the Australian Open lost to Karatsev in the first or second round of a challenger but I think that was his first match uh, yeah, I mean, this guy has played one ATP final in his career, one ATP Masters semifinal, and they both came this year. He's played one total uh, Grand Slam main draw. I mean, I I, I think the, it's important to frame that don't expect him to win Grand Slams in 2019, but you talk about checking all of the boxes. Uh, the only guy I think who checks as many boxes as him is Alex Zverev, and that's why I still have Zverev slightly above FAA, and I think if you're asking who's going to win a Grand Slam first just because of how long they've been on tour, that question is obvious. But And we are long ways away, and I apologize if this gets you in trouble with, as you mentioned, the Hawks, who just seem to love to come after you on Twitter. But if I say, you know, who ends up with more Grand Slam singles uh, titles, Alex Virev or FAA? I'm putting you under the gun. It's way too early to say either. I'm not, <laughs> not going to answer that just because, I mean, Felix has not even won a best-of-five match in his career yet. Like, yeah. I was putting Cart way before the horse started talking about his Grand Slam total. Uh, and obviously... Zverev has had a more established track record of underperforming compared to his ranking at Grand Slam events too. So I think he still has things to prove on those stages also. So I think they both kind of get incomplete grades at this point. Um, and that's fair. Yeah. But then let me let me amend the question. Going back to the boxes, is it fair to say they're the two guys who check the most boxes? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think someone like a is much less data than. Zverev. Zverev's been, you know, won his first Masters title a couple of years ago, so he's been around <laughs> as a really talked about player for a while. But someone like Sitsipas, you know, made a semifinal with a Grand Slam, I think, can be in that conversation. That's something no one else in his generation's done yet at the mass at the major level. Um so maybe he can be in that conversation too as being closer. Um I don't know. I, I think there's still I think so much of it is just gonna depend on opportunity. I mean, it's just not 
the, the most important luck in tennis is luck of the draw. And, and there's going to be times, I think, going forward, especially as fewer of the big four are showing up to be sort of the anchors of these quarters of the draws at Grand Slams, where there will be, you know, an early, there could be an early Federer loss, an early Djokovic loss that gets somebody who we might not think of as being the most deserving, quote unquote, or the most ready into deep rounds of a Grand Slam. And they can kind of skip ahead in the order. Um, and so yeah. I, I just don't, I don't think that it's, you know, all that knowable, really. I think lots of guys are there to put themselves in position. And I think the ATP is overdue for a Grand Slam kind of run or winner, kind of like an Ostapenko on the women's side in 2017, who came out of pretty much nowhere. And no one was talking about her before that tournament, but just things broke her way. And that used to happen all the time on the men's side, especially at the French Open back, you know, 15 years ago with Gaston Gaudio winning out of nowhere, <laughs> or even uh, Gustavo Curtin winning in 99 or 97. Puerta? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Puer Puerta making a deep run. Sure. I mean, there used to be, this used to happen a lot in men's tennis, and it hasn't happened at all. The big four have really locked it down. But I think, I hope for just sort of the getting a bit of chaos factor in men's tennis, which I think could desperately sort of use a shakeup after a really steady, really, you know, structured golden era which is you know has its positives but also lacks a little bit of uh excitement or danger to it i think it'd be cool to have <laughs> some, some guys making some runs out of nowhere and if it's suddenly you know i've never seen him on clay i don't think but if it's like suddenly her catch makes like a french open semi or final this year just because the draw is kind of there for him i think that'd be very cool for tennis Look, you mentioned Stefano Tsitsipas. I want to take the her catch bait, by the way, but I want to save him for later because I have a whole guys I didn't know coming into the year who have really impressed me segment that mm -hmm. I don't want to blow. Okay. Uh, so hold the her catch thoughts. Tsitsipas was the last guy for me who's made the jump into tier one. Uh, you know, you talk about him, he's jumped from number 15 to number eight, 17 and seven on the year. It's crazy that he's played eight tournaments already, but, you know, it's a testament to him really wanting to get out there. He's won a title in Marseille. Made the final in Dubai, lost to Fed, that Australian Open semifinal, obviously the most impressive thing on his resume thus far. You know, he's beaten Baslishvili, Federer, RBA, Goffin, Herkatch, Monfils, who played a tremendous first part of the year. But I, I just don't know. I, I feel like his game physically, I know he's an incredible shot maker, but I just worry about it wearing down throughout the year because of how much tennis he puts on his body. Yeah, I know he's going to have to chill with the scheduling for sure, and that's a... A, a, I got to assume largely a money thing with him. I mean, now that he's become a top player I and mean, more name, I mean, he was getting in the offseason, I'm sure a lot of really nice looking appearance fees to show up at a lot of these two fifties and had a tough time resisting them as when you are a new player on tour. And those are the first time that sort of money is being put in front of you. You know, that's a very tough thing to say no to. And something we saw certainly with someone like Dominic team early in his career was and still actually largely with him is still playing a lot of small tournaments and taking a lot of those, uh, checks to do that. And so Tsitsipas, you know, who hasn't made a ton of prize money in his career is, is in a sort of cashing in mode and uh, really has overscheduled. And I, I would hope that he will scale back as this year goes on and skip a tournament. I don't know what he still is, His schedule still has like Estoril and Barcelona. I think he doesn't need both of those tournaments, let's say. Um, so yeah, just do some pairing back because if you're expecting yourself to make deep runs, uh, you know, in singles, you should be playing fewer tournaments because you're going to get more matches that way. And now he made a final of the doubles in Miami with <laughs> Wesley Kuhlhoff. And he's going to, he said he's playing all the Masters events with Wesley Kuhlhoff now in doubles. So 
I, I think sometimes his eyes are bigger than his uh, his tennis stomach or whatever the expression would be. But uh, hopefully he figures that out with time and doesn't lead to any sort of injury that would be caused from overplaying because that wouldn't be the way you'd want him to learn the lesson. You made the comment, it was either last time or on one of the NCR podcasts, about him being just that breath of fresh air in this class of players. There are so many different personalities, and if you've been following tennis closely, you've obviously seen what Stefano Tsitsipas brings to the table. Uh, so th- there's that aspect as well, just him getting caught up in everything else that comes with the rising fame and all of that, you know, of breaking the top 10, moving up in the world. I-, I also just think physically, you know, this is why he's my last guy in tier one because I think he's got every skill in the book, Not- minus maybe the backhand slice, but that's just a little nitpicky. Uh, but I just think physically he can get hit off the court and obviously the two guys who he lost to in the sunshine double FA and Shapovalov have unique firepower but I just think you know movement wise he offers a little bit less than Zverev and FA who have it just so easy because of their natural gifts and that's why he's just slightly below uh I'm not totally sure I buy that premise I think that (laughs) he is a fast guy I mean I think he's not slow and I think that he's also just like there's something about him that looks a little more precarious when you watch him because of the one-handed backhand and him throwing himself around the court, the same way maybe with Shapovalov it does too. But when you're around him, he's a big, like, strong, sturdy-looking dude. And I, I was remember I was doing a mix zone interview with him standing in Miami, and I was reminded and sort of surprised at how tall he is because I don't remember him. I don't think of him as being that tall, but he's tall. He's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, or something like that. Um, and so he's in definitely one of the taller next-gen guys. Um so yeah, so I I I don't know. I I think that he's a decent mover and is pretty good at moving on all surfaces and can play some decent defense, but also doesn't want to. And he's somebody else I think who also has pretty good tactical clarity um, about mat- kind of matches. And yeah, I guess he he did lose matches. The the, the Shapovalov match was tight um, in Miami. I didn't see the Felix match in, in New Orleans, but it was surprisingly lopsided for Felix win there. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that the base is, is really strong with him. I just think he needs okay. to. I think I think he has the kind of game that can become a uh, a sort of alpha male type game out there. My counterpoint would be, I think it, his hair just makes him look faster, and I think he, he's a big lump. You know, he's a big lumbering guy, and I agree with you. I think the the I guess the base is a wrong way. I think he can snap off a ball as well as anyone. I think his serve has gained miles per hour this season, but I do worry. It's just. It's so hard to play defense with a one-handed backhand, at least in my opinion. Or you can just you see every guy trying to pressure that side of the court. Yeah, I, I just worry about it. And you have to hit so many inside-out forehands. All of these things it puts huge pressure on the footwork. That's why I have him slightly lower. Uh, but in terms of the tier one guys, and I know the categories are arbitrary. You mentioned Opelka. He gets that New York Open title. Obviously, starts ascending his way up. I think he's top sixty now. Is he still your last tier one guy? Or is there anyone else you'd throw in that category? No, I think I think Opelka will definitely be contending for for Grand Slams. I don't know who else would have gotten in there in this time. In terms of my last, again, I don't remember fully my picks from last time. Um, but Opelka is one <laughs> who I remember thinking like he. I think he'll be better than Isner. I think he's got a more complete game. I think he, well, I think he can be better than Isner. I should put it that way. It's not, I'm not definitive on him yet. There's not been enough data on almost any of these guys we're talking about to be super declarative yet. But uh, Opelka has a more well-rounded game at this age than Isner. And I think his serve still has a lot of room for improvement. I don't think he's really maximized that shot yet, which is sort of scary for the rest of the tour. Um, so yeah, I, I think that his potential is massive. And if you're talking about someone who could be better than Isner, 
then you're talking about somebody who's a long-term, you know, top five player because Isner's had a very solid, you know, career as a mm-hmm. eight through twelve kind of player for most of it, for a lot of it anyway. Well, you talk about that data. I should have mentioned as we said, FAA one slam main draw played. CT Pass has only played seven main draws. Opelka's only played two slam main draws, and I know he knocks out. Who was it that he beat in the first round this year of the Australian Isner. Open? Was it it? Yeah, it was Isner. And so that was obviously a notable win for him, and he was railing off of the strong ending from last season on the Challenger circuit. But I, I don't know. I just – if you tell me – maybe this is me being sticky about my own Tier 1 category. While I could see Opelka getting hot, you know, making a run, I just – top 10, it, it takes so much physically to last, and given how tall he is, you're t- I just – it's hard to bet on a guy who's you know 7 feet tall staying healthy over the next 10 years. Yeah, that's that's fair. And and I, and I don't. I'm not wishing against him. By the way, I'm totally rooting for him to succeed. But yeah, ten and five on the year. Uh, he makes the Dallas Challenger semifinal as well as that Australian Open second round, my op- Miami th- Open third round through qualies and that New York Open title. Though we should say he beat Isner, he beat Manorino, but some of the other wins in that run. It was a weak draw just in general. Uh, the last guy who I think. If, you know, early on in the year, if I would have said, oh, he's now a tier one guy, a lot of people would say, oh, definitely. Alex Dimenauer, who started the year on fire, you know, wins in Sydney, uh, makes the Australian Open third round and kind of flamed out against Nadal, but still uh, made a Brisbane quarterfinal, Acapulco quarterfinal. And just, I, I guess what I want to ask is, do you see a grand slam out of him or do you think physically it's tough to project that, you know, given how small he is over two weeks, he'd hold up? I'm... Um- undecided on demon hour i think that he's I, I don't know i mean i think a lot of it will depend on how he can match these biggest guys he, he he is the one who is physically the most undersized of his generation and of the although he's taller than you would think he is by looking at him on tv he's not like five seven or something he's like five almost like six feet tall maybe i mean he's like he just looks so young and so thin that he comes off looking shorter and tinier than he is. Although in that match that he lost against Rafael Nadal at the Australian Open, which was the last match of his I think I've seen this year, he looked like he was in a completely different weight class than Nadal and just was getting bullied around completely. And so that was inauspicious. Um, yeah, but I think that he's a really strong grass court player. He made a junior Wimbledon final. Uh, if he's People compare him to Leighton Hewitt all the time, which is good and bad. For certain things, but Hugh was a great grass court player and can play. He can play a very sort of low zipping, flat kind of game, which I think could really pay dividends, especially against some of these bigger guys uh, in his generation. Uh, so I think he's in the mix. I don't know tier your, on your definitions and your criteria for these categories. <laughs> if tier one means you know number one and winning several Grand Slams, I think that's probably uh, aiming high for for Alex. But I think he could absolutely be a fixture in the top ten for a while. That's a nice counter to them. It's sort of the filling that sort of Ferrer-type spot in this generation. I think it's the Michigan connection because that tier definition sound good enough to me. Okay. Yeah, I just, I, you know, I wanted to put his run in because he was, you know, through the first month of the season, he was as impressive as any next-gen player. So I just felt, you know, there there might be people who said, oh, that's a guy you're forgetting. But I do want to move into tier two. Uh, these are players I equiv- uh, I think the equivalent of Marin Chilich-type careers where, you know, they're in the top 10 for a sustained period of time top five even maybe even winning a grand slam the guy who i want to talk about you you can't talk tennis without mentioning him 
Nick Kyrgios, who has had a fascinating start uh, to the 2019 season, kind of culminating with his title in Acapulco. Uh, just a tremendous run there, beats Nadal, Wawrinka, Isner, Zverev, just incredible stuff from Nick. And I, I, it's hard not to include him in Tier 1, but I still think he has the talent to win a Grand Slam someday. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that Tier 1... You're talking about being like a steady top number one ranked player. Yeah, that, I don't. I don't know and that. That's why not. I don't know that Nick will ever be ranked number one. I don't know if he has that kind of, you know, prolonged, you know, excellence that it, and consistency that it takes to be there. But he can absolutely win a Grand Slam. I mean, he can absolutely when he's at his best. I mean, he's motivated, um, which can turn on and off very quickly within a tournament, within a match, within a point. I mean, he, you know, he can be the best, and we saw that. I loved his run in Acapulco so much. I thought that was tremendous. And I love what he said that, you know, he got motivated to beat Seppi in the first round because he saw that the winner of that match played Nadal. And he just really wanted to play Nadal. And he and that sort of eagerness for beating the best and for being combative with the best uh, is so refreshing in this sport, which has so often in the last decade or so been too nice, especially on the men's side. Just like too <laughs> deferential, too polite. Um, and Nick is, you know, out there sort of screaming in people's faces occasionally and hitting underhand serves and things people don't dare do. And it's just cool. And I, I hope that his sort of that sort of fearlessness is something that's more around this next generation in terms of how they compete. Because I feel like there has been a lot of really in terms of just the competitive side, I think it's been too differential and too reverent and respectful a lot of times in men's tennis with the in the big four era and nick is shaking that up even still look if people are looking for headlines there that is ben rothenberg criticizes roger federer for his kindness no, for I, his compassion for no i'm just it's less kidding about federer no i will criticize other people but it's less about federer it's more that everyone's too kind to him it's more <laughs> that like people don't go out there and like do things intentionally and try to piss off federer right i mean like federer is yeah. the best and why not do something to get under i mean people will be like you know do something to get under his skin or figure out some way because you know you're not just trying to go out there and play your own game and do your best you're trying to unnerve your opponent and thwart your opponent get your opponent off their game and distress them whatever way you can within the rules and you know little things like when you know like well like lucas rosal was is the best example of this in in this century when he beat nadal wimbledon and did it by really strutting around and acting like he owned the place in a way that was so unusual to see someone do especially a nobody to do against a big four guy and rafa was as the kids say shook i mean he was really annoyed that entire match and it absolutely was part of why i think rosal was able to come in and win that one you you talk about Kyrgios wanting to play the biggest guys. You you look at his records. I, I don't think this includes Labor Cup, but only ATP matches. He's one and three against Fed, two and zero oh against Djokovic, three and three against Nadal. Yeah, he's a guy who brings it on the biggest stages, and that's just why, you know, despite his inconsistencies, despite how frustrated you may get with some of the things he's doing, uh, he's just incredibly talented and you, you can't talk about this first part of the season without talking about his sh- incredible run in Acapulco uh, another guy I want to talk to kind of the opposite of Kyrgios who's all flash this is a guy who I, you know you'll never even hear of until he's in the final of the tournament 
Daniil Medvedev, who came into the, to the year obviously ranked number 16 after a great 2018. I think he won three titles last season. And he started the year on fire, 17-6 and six overall. He won in Sofia, made the Brisbane final, lost in the round of 16 at the Australian Open to Djokovic, but was one of the few players who could take a set off of him. You know, Indian Wells round of 16 kind of gets steamrolled by Federer, and he didn't play great in Miami either. But he is a guy who just is so consistent, so solid. You know what you're going to get with him. And as the serve becomes more of a weapon, because this is another guy you forget, he's six foot six. I just, I love him on hard courts. I can see him, you know, four years from now, everyone's tired or injured from the long season, and he steals a U.S. Open. I, I, that could well be. I mean, I love watching Medvedev. I love what a different sort of look he throws at players and his very different way of being a super physical player because he plays a really masochistic not masochistic sadistic (laughs) sadistic kind of tennis where like he's just trying to and you saw this against Djokovic how he like broke Djokovic's back during that match and was the only person (laughs) to really challenge Djokovic or make Djokovic uncomfortable during uh, Djokovic's title run in Melbourne this year uh Medvedev is, is a really interesting player to watch and is already in his young career you know gotten some big scalps and had some pretty dominant rivalries. He was, I think he's like 3-0 or 4-0 against Tsitsipas already, um, even though he's been ranked behind him most of the time. He just has a game that can cause people trouble and really annoy them, and he has had past off, you know, on-court antics as well as also unnerved opponents, which he kind of hasn't done as much of lately, so I don't know if that part of him is completely gone or just on hiatus. Um, but, <laughs> but he's a really good disruptor, and yeah, he's somebody also I think could totally be in the mix for being the surprise first one to win a Grand Slam or something. Like, if the draw breaks his way, there's, or it's playing a certain way, There, he's good on hard courts, he's good on grass. I haven't seen a ton of him on clay. I don't remember him having any big clay results that I can think of. But with his sort of flat hitting and, and interesting game, he can be someone who can, when that's all clicking correctly, he can be a world beater for sure, and there's no one I can count him out against. Well, you know, he's married now, so he had to get his act together. I guess so, uh, yeah. No, he also, yeah. I was going to do, I was ready to do a story on him, and I did an interview with him in Miami, which hopefully will run at some point uh, in the near future on the clay, I guess, if he has any sort of result. And, you know, he's matured. He used to be a huge, huge gamer. He would bring his PlayStation, I think, on the road with him all the time <laughs> and play hours and hours and hours on tour. And he's re- recently decided to stop doing that, which I think has led to a direct improvement in his conditioning and things like that. And he's, uh, married now too which i'm sure also takes up more of his time and or he at least has to be more considerate of other people's entertainment wishes uh, in his downtime so uh yeah so he's he's an interesting one and i i think he's also one that he's definitely the least heralded compared to how good they are of this of this group he just hasn't i guess because he's russian largely he has been kind of under the radar well, as hideous as his forehand is, he's just the type of guy who can reach everything. Like, he really just, he gets that extra ball back in play. Uh, yeah. He's got a first serve. That's a weapon. He is such a physically talented player. Yeah, I, I agree with you. He's definitely a guy you need to watch. Uh, one thing I would say, another concern we mentioned with Tsitsipas, this guy who has seven tournaments under his belt already. And yeah, he's had a ton of success, but he looked a little worn down in Indian Wells in Miami. A little bit, yeah, but I think that he still has, has you know, it's still young. I, I still think he'll be fine physically. And like I said, I'm not sure off the top of my head what his clay game is like at all. Um, but he's there. He, yeah, he's rangy. He's got these interesting sort of golf shots. He's, yeah, super big wingspan. He's like the like the Waluigi of the next gen, really. 
<laughs> Always happy for a Mario Tennis reference, so sure. The Waluigi. Hopefully that that's his new Twitter handle. Um, a guy we yeah we haven't talked about, uh, but I think he's had like a quietly fine 2019. Still a guy I have in tier two. Borna Chorich, you know, nine and five on the year, made a Dubai semifinal, uh, Indian or maybe it was Miami or Indian Wells quarter. I think it was Miami quarterfinal where mm-hmm. he lost to FAA Australian Open round of sixteen, lost to just uh, Luca Pui who was playing incredible tennis that week. I mean, I, we don't have to talk about him for long, but another guy, right? He he's looked about as expected. Yeah, he's been fine, and and I think yeah. that not especially exceptional, not great. I mean, I was a little surprised that he beat. Kyrgios in Miami and ended Kyrgios sort of run there although and that was a lot about Kyrgios unraveling too um yeah he's been fine he's he's another guy who doesn't almost feel like next gen because he's been around so long he made his <laughs> he made his breakthrough when he was 16 17 and was already beating Andy Murray whoever he beat early on there or Nadal and Basel a bunch of big early results and so he feels almost closer to a team generation even if he is age-wise closer to, to Zverev yeah, well, the, as you mentioned, the experience, he's played 18 total slams. One thing I like from his progression, made the fourth round of the U.S. Open last year, makes the fourth round of the Australian Open to start his season here, both his best results at slams. He made the third round of last year's French. I'm sure he would like to make another second week there uh, in this upcoming thing. But, yeah, you look at his records against the big three, uh, and I say that so painfully because I'm quite the Murray slappy. I think we talked about that last time. Uh, but just two and three against Fed, zero oh and three against Djokovic, Nadal, uh, two and two against Nadal. I think again, I liked how you framed it. If the draw breaks right, one of those guys gets upset early, he could steal a slam. Why not? Yeah, he's he's one of those again, one of those many people in there. And I still think there's players who we don't talk about, like or are talking about in this sort of you know sexier next gen category who can be in there too. People like Aronish, people like Anisha Corey, people like a uh, team like a. Chorich, like Chilich is not a net first time winner, but Chilich could be in there too as a sort of unexpected guy, or even an Anderson if he gets his health back together. Like I just think there there is with Murray seemingly out for the foreseeable future, um, with Nadal playing less and less, with Federer you know playing less too, or just possibly being a little less steady, especially who knows best of five if he's weaker now than he was before, and with Djokovic having still being great but having a rough March, and so who knows with that four tens for the for the upcoming future um if those things happen i think we could get some some draws full of opportunity which could lead to all sorts of different outcomes and even just like that's the sort of i did a poll on twitter uh about next canadian to win a grand slam uh you know at some point with felix and dennis and andrescu and ronich and some people were like wired ronich in here his time is over like no it's not like ronich is still ranked (laughs) higher than any of them a and then B is like still in there with a mix. Like I feel like we have to, in our sort of excitement for you know, hyping up these these bigging up these kids' achievements. Like there's still plenty of other people who are possibly ahead of them in line, or possibly just as in it as they are. If even if they don't have as as cool a tagline. Uh, a bunch of tangents off of that. Tangent number one. I think the the follow up Twitter poll is who wins a Grand Slam first in Amer or in singles, an American player or a Canadian player, and you obviously throw Serena in the mix there with the Americans and it kinda and you know, her, Keys, Stevens versus Andrescu, FAA, Shapovalov, Raonic. Yeah. I'll take America there it, easily. It, 
interesting. I think it would be interesting. I think you'd get some interesting results. I mean, you put Serena Sloan and, and Keys in there, and I think that's a stronger group yeah. already than any of the uh, Canadians have. That's my thought. I mean, Andreescu won Indian Wells. I'm just trying she to make did, the counterpoint. Right. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, so it's in- it's interesting. The other thing I wanted to ask, and you mentioned Team Rayonich, all of these guys. Would you say, given the health of Rafa Nadal being in flux, I know we have a full clay season ahead of us, Dominic team maybe a sneaky favorite at the French Open? Ahead of Nadal? Ahead of Nadal. No. No. Uh, no. <laughs> um, Nadal is always manages to be in fine health on clay. Um, and he'll, he will be fine until proven otherwise on that. Really, I mean, there's been, that's been the story of his last few years. Like, he's been... You know, a, a constant withdrawer on uh, on various hardcore <laughs> events and grass court events, like Queens Club or whatever, and and he plays a pretty robust full clay schedule and wins all his matches and looks great and manages to peak or at least persevere or something or whatever this time of year. So no, he's still the hugely player to beat on clay until it would take a lot for me to shift his. And it wouldn't be Team who would who would overtake him. It would be Djokovic for me. I mean, Djokovic, there was a... Djokovic is the one who's beaten him. At the French Open before, Djokovic is the one who's won the French Open before. Um, I think he's the one. If he comes out firing and winning, like Madrid and or Rome or something, he's the one. I think you could really supplant Nadal as the in pole position for Paris. I was trying to bait you, although I should say there was a Wimbledon video where they did Nadal uh, trivia with Nadal, and he's like, "How many losses have you had on clay?" And he goes, "You know, twenty twelve didn't lose, twenty thirteen didn't lose," <laughs> and he just kind of goes through it, and it's really impressive. And it's so yeah, you're right. Until we see him lose, I think that's a fair assessment. I just I like team. I really I may, I'm just so desperate for someone not named Djokovic, Federer, Nadal to win, yeah. and I'm maybe that's biasing my thoughts but i i could see it i mean the guy is so good on clay a slow surface place his huge backswing so well so that's, i just i'm all in that's my that's my grain of salt for all of this you know next gen talk i think we're 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 all desperate <laughs> i think that that <laughs> yeah. desperation should be considered when talking about you know how soon and how big these next gen results are going to be because they uh they could be you know, the other guys are still there, and the status quo is still the status quo until officially otherwise. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Well, then we can move on to a guy we've talked about, and we're still in Tier 2 for our listeners if you're trying to keep track of tiers. Um, uh, we've talked about Denis Shapovalov, jumps from 27 to 20 now, obviously makes his uh, then Miami Masters semifinal, loses to Fed, but so impressive from him. You know, he knocks out Evans, Rublev, Tsitsipas, Tiafo, also has a win over Chilich and Burdich earlier this year. I-, I guess the question about him I want to ask you, I think his best tennis, his ceiling, you could say, is as high as any player, you know, when he is hitting the cover off the ball and it's somehow managing to go in. Good luck tracking those down. But I just think there's no plan B at this point, and that's why I have him a little bit lower. That's fair. No, and I, I think that his results have been kind of up and down. I had completely forgotten uh, until I was looking up his master stats <laughs> that he made a Madrid semifinal last year. That totally uh, not an event that registered in my mind at all. Um, so good for him, belatedly, for that. Um and yeah, his results have been kind of up and down and been kind of hot and cold. And that's fine. And we're going to have those players, players like Del Pocho or like, I don't know, whoever else, Kvitova on the women's side, who have, who kind of go really hot and really cold in their careers. And maybe Shapovalov with his aggressive go for broke kind of style will be in that category. And that can be exciting, but it's not something to, to bank on per se. 
Yeah. And, and you know, Max Rothman, the guy I usually do this podcast with, is such a big fan of Shapovalov's. The way he can just hit, you know, bat, one-handed backhand, snap them off cross-court, but then also just fire them down the line. You don't see that often from players. And he's a lefty, I think, against Tsitsipas. You know, he kept firing serves into the backhand. That's a quality he has that's unique compared to a lot of these other next-gen players. He has played a total of seven Grand Slams, so I'm willing to take a deep breath, and he's 19 years old. But certainly a guy, yeah, as you mentioned, one of the many players who could break through and win a slam someday. Yeah, no, we just haven't seen—we still see him as sort of being a challenger, and that's the interesting thing about Tsitsipas' ranking getting higher is that he's going to be— Someone who's you know going to be a top eight seed probably at the French Open, and will be someone who expected by seedings to make the quarterfinals. That's a whole different kind of pressure, um, for in terms of judging a someone as a top player, uh, and how well they handle those uh, particular pants to uh, to be to be there. And Dennis is is still on that sort of outside wild card, almost sort of a floater kind of category. How funny is it for you to see some of these young players now seeded in events? Is it crazy? Uh, it catches you by surprise for sure. Like sits a pass for sure when he's like a single digit seed at a Masters event, you kind of double take <laughs> at that. Um, when Felix will be seated probably at the French Open, that'll be that'll feel unusual considering he's barely been in a Slam draw before. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, I mean, I'm used to you know change and things like that. There are occasionally players who are unseated too. We catch you off guard. You know, when you're in a Grand Slam now and Burdich is unseated, or that just feels <laughs> weird because he was such yeah. a you know such a fixture in the top 10 for so long while Rinka not seated at an ATP 250 blew my mind I was like what's this guy doing playing first round mm-hmm. yeah it, it it definitely works both ways um I do want to again what we've, we've talked about a lot of guys the last I have three more tier two guys maybe four more one of which I'm positive on we talked about Opelka and Diminuer already Francis Tiafo. I mean the uh, we've talked about the slew of great results his Australian Open quarterfinal run as impressive of any of the players results uh, of this list Knocks off Anderson, Seppi, Dimitrov, uh, played just so physically, and just the the creativity as well, his willingness to move forward. The first serve seems to have really become a weapon, yet the reason, you know, while his physical profile is as impressive as any guy on this list, the forehand return, I mean, he just slices them now. It's just something he's accepted, and that's always going to be a weakness of his, and it's why I think we saw him, you know, lose first round to Sidney to Millman, lose first round to John in New York, lose first round to Evans and Delray, second round to Mackey. These guys know, uh, in Acapulco, these guys know how to target him. They're finally figuring out, okay, this is his weakness. This is what I need to do. Yeah. Francis is still one I have a tough time computing totally because, like you said, there are these apparent weaknesses in his game that even, you know, fairly untrained eyes can spot pretty clearly. But at the same time, like, that run in Australia is very tough to argue with. What he was able to do there and other big runs in the Miami run even that he had, you know, he's backing these things up. That was his first master's quarterfinal. Um, he's, he's doing really impressive things and, and he's an incredible competitor, I guess, an incredible match player. Even if there are these apparent limitations he has, he still has this huge potential too. And the technique, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that look like they have to go exactly right, but he manages to get them exactly right more often than not. And in this generation where so many players are really technically sound and really complete players um and that's one thing writ large about the next gen almost all of them are much better net players and all court players than the generation before them 
I mean, look at Felix, look at Dennis, look at Tsitsipas. Tiafo outside of Hotman Cup with Serena, where he was pretty rough in the doubles. Um, he, they're all players who are really comfortable at net and really comfortable finishing up there. And so that's a really positive thing for aesthetic tennis in the future. Um, but yeah, Tiafo, Tiafo is an interesting one. And I still, I still am undecided. I still, when it works, I'm always find myself a little bit surprised it's working as well as it does, even though I shouldn't be by this point because it keeps doing it over and over. But I don't know, something, he still just manages to surprise me and manages to surpass my expectations and keep having me rethink my expectations for his game and his technique and what it's, uh, what his limits are. So it'll be interesting to see how other players adjust to him in particular and other coaches adjust to him and to see if there is a, if the book comes out on, on Tiafo and they figure out how to beat him and how to really uh, make his game wobblier than it is currently, or, or if it, or if it holds up, that's going to be a big test for him. Last question to you on Tiafo. I know your thoughts on three out of five versus two out of three, and I promise we're not going to litigate that now. Okay. Uh, but for Tiafo specifically, I think three out of five benefits him given how physical he can make a match, given that he's going to keep you on your toes. It's just hard to maintain that focus of, you know, attack the forehand or do all the things you have to do for that long. Do you think that's fair? Do you think he is better suited for the Grand Slam format than the two out of three? I mean, he played some has some big, long wins in on Melbourne. Uh, there's not a lot of data on him, really. Again, I mean, like, I don't know is my short answer. I don't, I don't know where he shakes out on that, but he doesn't seem like somebody who is because he had his breakthrough at a Grand Slam before he had one at a Masters. Um, it would lead me to think that best of five is not an obstacle for him. Certainly not the way it is for like Zverev. Um, so yeah, so I, I think he could be a, a Grand Slammy kind of player, sure. All right. Well, you know, I, I bring you on. You're the New York Times expert. Uh, I can't get the I don't know answers. I'm, I'm trying to bait you. This I, I gave you more or less an answer there. I think yeah. I, think <laughs> I he's, know. I'm just I think he's. I think he's. Yeah. He seems com- relatively comfortable in Grand Slams, and he had uh, good no, U.S. Open I, runs before that too. So or show more. Us, more. Anyway. Pr- I always get the play-by-play after the pod from my mother, and I recommend everyone do that when you do something like this. And she always makes sure to say, you know, these guests make you look smarter, and you are certainly on that list. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Mom. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, of course. She'll appreciate that as well. Well, then, two guys still in Tier 2 that I am not as, you know, thrilled about at their early parts of the year. I want to talk about them real quick. Hyun Chung, I think we can kind of leave him aside because of the injuries and everything going on there. But I know you had reservations when we talked about it on our last podcast. Yeah. I mean, have you heard anything going on in terms of his health or just what's been going on with his season? I haven't heard a lot. I mean, I've, I've heard from his uh, agent just sort of, you know, encouraging optimism about his future and, and stuff and knowing that he's been hurt and Whatever, it just feels like it's been a long time since I've seen him play, honestly. He's outside top 100 now, right? And so he's uh, going to have some rebuilding to do and have to kind of start from the bottom again, rankings-wise, when he comes back, which is tough, especially after making that big breakthrough in Australia. But even after that breakthrough, and I don't know when the injury started exactly, but the rest of his 2018 was not good, and that's why he's already at top 100, because uh, I mean, he has very few points from that part of the year. So, yeah, I don't know. I... I, I I think he needs to sort of start over and, and reprove himself and see if his sort of game can hold up physically or not. Um, you know, early warning, early, early signs of like Anisha Corey type thing where he's getting injured right after a breakthrough and one step forward, one step back in terms of the sort of model he's in. So we'll see. I, I hope he comes back. I, I what he did in twenty eighteen at the Australian Open was very very special, and uh, any sort of glimmer of that would be would be great for the tour's future to have him be a real sort of you know 
good baseliner. Like I said, the other guys are more complete all quarters, but he's a, a very solid baseliner in a way that'd be a good thing to add to the mix. I agree with you. Well, we, we you know we can't add on much because he has been so injured. The other guy who just he, he can't seem to string uh, more than three wins uh, together. That's Karen Kachnov, as mm-hmm. I affectionately say. I know that's not pronounced correctly, but at this point, why not just accentuate getting it wrong? Yeah. Uh, he, seven and seven on the year. Made that Indian Wells quarterfinal run. Really should have beaten a cramping Nadal. I mean, he uh, he just played so tentatively, was so afraid to blow the match that that's what he ended up doing. I mean, this is a guy who lost first round Qatar, first round Rotterdam, first round Dubai, first round Miami despite maybe it's the curse of the 2018 Paris or the Paris Masters title Jack Sock this happens to last year yeah Karen Kachanov it's happening to this year now I don't think that's actually true but you know what have you seen from Kachanov why, why do you think this is you know yeah why he hasn't had the success in 2019 we saw at the end of last year I was gonna make the joke too I mean like <laughs> Jack Sock set the bar really high for what it takes to flop as a Bear Sea champion in the next year <laughs> and so and so Kachanov is not in that category really at all um in terms of how bad his year has been or how underwhelming because he did make, you know, a run in, in Paris and did okay in the like, third round of Australian Open. So not totally atrocious. Um, but, you know, first time playing a longer season, first time recovering from that, I think he'll be fine. I, I'm not worried about him a long time. He's a good clay quarter uh, in my time watching him on clay. So I think this could be a pretty resurgent time of year for him. And if he's slow out of the blocks in 2019, I'm not not panicking about it at all for him. This is another arbitrary one, but screw it. I'm going to try it anyways. Kachanov or Medvedev, more likely to win. Or who do you have winning the first Grand Slam, if any? I guess uh, it's going to come down to opportunities, I know. But yeah, who yeah. do you think has uh, – is that the answer? Should we just skip it? No, no. I'm not going to cop out like that all the time. I'm just saying that for, you know, <laughs> big picture. Head-to-head. Uh, Kachanov is the one who's closer now. I mean, Kachanov is the one who, you know, has a game that is more imposing and can beat players when they're at their best. You know, I think Medvedev is sort of good at taking people off their games, but Kachanov can go head-to-head with a top player and match them shot for shot in a way that's pretty encouraging. What he's done with Nadal at the U.S. Open last year, what he did with Djokovic beating him in Paris. Uh, yeah, I think Kachanov still has a it's, – it's a, it's a good, you know, I'm going to say sort of alpha-type player. He'd be out there, big, strong, strapping dude who can go out and bully people around and, and be, a, be an aggressor in a way that I think is uh, – you know, he's he's one of the most physically. He think he might be the most physically imposing player of all the next geners. Yeah, so he's zero six lifetime against Nadal, but I would say he's broken him twice. You know, he broke him in that U.S. Open. I mean, team also made some cracks, but mm-hmm. Nadal ends up having to try breaks him in Indian Wells. I mean, those matches are just such physical. I, I just marvel at the physicality. It's so impressive the way these guys go side to side, uh, just the, with the power they're hitting with. It's so impressive to me. The other thing I like about Kachanov. You know, we've seen him have success on every surface, and it's a small sample size, only 10 total slams, but that he's made, you know, third round or better at all uh, four of them, it, it bodes well for his career. Again, another guy who physically can hold up over a two-week span. Yep. Yeah, I know. If, if he starts getting on his horse whatsoever and on clay, he's somebody else who can I think would be a sort of longer shortlist contender in Paris. Uh, I think that that's a good surface for him. I think that he's got the the game for it and he can he can make some moves
Thank you for listening to part one of my conversation with Ben Rothenberg talking about the next-gen ATP players through the quarter mark of this season. If you enjoyed that, be sure to stick around for part two, which we will be releasing later this week. We talk about the tier three, tier four guys, and you know later on in the conversation, we also do a little Twitter Tuesday segment, which if you missed, you can find on our mini break podcast feed. Another fun note for you Great Shot podcast listeners, we are currently doing a CR gear giveaway on our mini break pod. If you leave a review and you leave your Twitter handle, Instagram handle, email account, we will find a way to get in touch with you. And at the end of the week, we are going to pick one listener at random, send them some cool CR gear. It might be a pocket t-shirt. It might be one of our original t-shirts, a hat, a shock absorber. We don't know yet, but you definitely want to be a part of that. So go check out that competition. Obviously, we'd appreciate your ratings and subscriptions on this, the What the Deuce podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast. Check out our website, crackedrackets.com, if you've missed anything else from the tennis world. Uh, always got to give a huge shout out to our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff, who have a f-ing editing job to do as always. But uh, one last time for my wonderful co-host, Ben Rothenberg, who you can hear more of again on part two and on the No Challenges remaining podcast for our super producers, Max Fliegner, Daniel Westoff, and from our entire team at Cracked Rackets, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, hey, great shot, and we will see you all for part two. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.